0: Hey everyone, if you like mystery thriller, paranormal, historical fiction, romance, and social justice all wrapped up into one delicious read, then I'm about to introduce you to your newest favorite author. Today I'm talking with Randy Overbeck, author of The Haunted Shores Mysteries, about his latest book, Crimson at Cape May. But before we get started, here's the inside scoop on Randy. Dr. Randy Overbeck is a veteran educator who has served children as a teacher and school leader. For more than three decades, his educational experiences and responsibilities ranged from coach and yearbook advisor to principal and superintendent, and he's lived the roles of many of the characters in his stories. As an accomplished writer, he's been published in trade journals, professional texts and newspapers, as well as in fiction, now with his third published novel. As a member of the Mystery Writers of America, Dr. Overbeck is an active member of the literary community contributing to a writer's critique group, serving as a mentor to emerging writers, and participating in writing conferences such as Sleuth Fest, Killer Nashville, and the Midwest Writers' Workshop. When he's not writing or researching his next exciting novel or sharing his presentation, Things That Go Bump in the Night, he's spending time with his incredible family of wife, three children, and their spouses, and seven wonderful grandchildren. You can learn more about Dr. Randy Overbeck at his website, authorrandyoverbeck.com. Well, hi, Randy. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to talking with you about your new book, Crimson at Cape May. I wonder if you could start by just telling us a little bit about the book.
1: Uh, I would be happy to. Um, I should first say that Crimson at Cape May is the second entry in a series called The Haunted Shore's Mystery, One reviewer, I like the way one reviewer described these books best. And he says, it's a cold case murder mystery wrapped in a ghost story, served with a side of romance, all located in one of the most beautiful settings in the U.S. (laughs) I thought that was really great. So I've stolen it from the reviewer. And this particular one is set in Cape May. For those who don't know, Cape May, New Jersey is at the very tip of New Jersey. It's a very old resort, maybe 150, 170 years old Mm. people have been coming there. Uh, It's a very unique town that that has a history of being the most haunted seaport on the eastern shore. So uh, it had lots of potential that I could tap in order to write uh, my fiction, of course, about a murdered haunted bride uh, that my hero has to find Mm. justice for that bride and in the process Ends up getting entangled in a much bigger crime uh, that he has to resolve in order to save young children.
0: It's such a distinctive angle, you know, combining the paranormal realm with um, amateur sleuth mysteries. So I'm kind of curious as to what inspired this. Do you believe in ghosts?
1: Well, I do believe in ghosts.
0: I've not had a spectral experience myself,
1: although I have talked to a number of people since I've written the book and been about out about talking about who have. I think the best explanation is this. I agree with Shakespeare. Shakespeare said, there is more to heaven and earth, Horatio, than is dreamt of in your philosophy. (laughs) And that was his very great way of saying, there are just too many things in this world that uh, we really don't have an explanation for. And ghosts are one of them.
2: Yeah. Uh, I
1: don't know if you know this or not, but ghosts are part of the fabric of every religious belief system in the world. Hmm. So wherever you go, wherever you were raised, part of their mythology is all about ghosts. So, yes, I think it's, uh, it's something that a lot of people share. and So I tap that as a possibility to go along with the murder
0: mystery. Yeah, yeah. Now, do readers need to believe in ghosts to appreciate your story?
1: Well, I no. The answer is no, I don't think so. And many of the reviewers that, that readers will find on Amazon say exactly that. You don't really need to believe in ghosts to enjoy this book. Uh, But you may well believe in it by the time you finish. I did a great deal. I do a lot of research for my writing, and I did a lot of research in the area of ghosts. So I have worked hard to present not some glossed-over version of ghosts or not some horror movie version of ghosts. It's really what has been documented about how uh, ghosts on the other side communicate with us here
2: Mm -hmm. and how
1: that might might fit into a story of trying to solve a mystery
0: yeah yeah you know for me it's like i can't really say one way or another if i believe in ghosts but maybe the answer is i do but i don't want to (laughs) you know
1: (laughs) i do there's (laughs) a lot of people i think that feel that way yeah yeah according to a recent survey taken in the united states more than 50 percent of people believe in ghosts in america huh
0: that's so interesting now, most uh, mystery writers orient their stories in a particular setting, you know, one location or area, and create uh, multiple mysteries from, from that setting. But you kind of did things a little differently. In your series, each of the books are set on a different shore location, the eastern shore for Blood on the Chesapeake, and then, of course, Cape May for your new book, Crimson at Cape May. Why did you decide to go that route and select different locations for your stories?
1: Well, I I will admit that it's a lot easier to find one location that you love and then develop multiple stories, uh, in this case, multiple mystery stories out of those locations. But I I was searching for very unique, small town, uh, very attractive locations that I thought readers would enjoy visiting in the book. Mm -hmm. And although I know that there are people who have tried to do that, I always found that Trying to set multiple murder mysteries in this little town really, really stretched credibility. I mean, with no offense to murder, she wrote, you know, <laughs> the last place I'd ever want to go in that is that town that she set that. Because everybody in town seems to die. Right. So I worked really hard to make the story credible. You know, if, as long as you admit that maybe there could be ghosts, you can kind of go, oh, I see how this could happen. So that was part of it. The other part of it is it got me the opportunity to go meet other neat places. I had never visited Cape May, by example, Mm. until I had started working on this series. And I said, "Mm, that would kind of be a really interesting place. So uh, it gives me a chance to, to learn a new place, to research a new place, and then share that discovery with my readers. Of course, now I'm working on the third one. So I have another new place. I'm sure after that, I'll find a fourth wonderful place.
0: Well, it doesn't sound like you'll run out of places, for sure. There's a lot of coastal towns along the eastern seashore, and I don't know how far you're going to venture, but it sounds like you have a lot of material to work with.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. as far as I can take there. And I should probably give credit
0: where credit is due. I'm a
1: big fan of Nevada Bar and her Anna Pigeon series. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but mm. those are mysteries set in 15 different national parks. And each one, you know, she's in Mississippi, she's in Alaska, she's in... Tennessee. And everyone has a different mystery attached to it. And I thought, now that's really kind of a neat idea. And then I also try to figure out a way so that the murder mystery is somehow something that would happen, not only in that area, but it would happen in that area.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned it being easier to set all your stories in one town, Um, easier to write, but I imagine that would make it easier to research as well. Uh, What are some of the challenges in setting your story in a different town for each book?
1: Well, if you're setting it in a place that you don't live, then you have to kind of learn what it's like to live there. Um, So, first of all, that means, of course, multiple business. But I've been very fortunate. I get to know the locals when we go into town. I become really good friends with the Chamber of Commerce people, with merchants, with uh, hotel owners, restaurant owners. And I learn kind of what it's like to be a local in that area.
0: Now, your hero in these books is Daryl Henshaw, and he's a high school history teacher um, who has some issues and also has an ability to see ghosts. Now, I know that you're a lifelong educator and served kids as a teacher, college professor, and school leader. And does that give us some insight into Daryl, or can you give us some insight into Daryl? Maybe talk about what drives him and.
1: Yeah, Daryl is at his essence um, what many, many great teachers that I work with, and that is that his life begins and ends with being there for kids.
2: Mm-hmm. In his
1: case, kids are usually high school kids, but not always. So a lot of what he does is defined by uh, trying to help kids. Everything that, you know, whether he's coaching, whether he's teaching history, he is trying to help open up kids to new possibilities and help them believe in themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would like to think that I did much of that in my education, but I can tell you that I knew many really great educators that that would precisely define them. And, and Daryl is at least in some point an homage to uh, those great educators. Mm. Daryl has other complications of course, because Daryl sees ghosts, which he's is a particular gift that he's not very happy with. (laughs) And it almost always gets him in trouble and sometimes almost gets him killed. So he has reason to have some concern about that.
0: Yeah. In addition,
1: he's carrying out some baggage from before, which uh, has manifested itself in his OCD. He has definitely some obsessive compulsive behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that figures into the story as well.
0: Yeah. Now, also in the story, Daryl meets uh, Cassie, a streetwise teen, and learns that she is a sensitive like him. And uh, you just alluded to the fact that that means they can see ghosts and others can't. What can you tell us about Cassie? Why did you choose this character, and why is her inclusion important to the story overall?
1: Well, in my work in education, I've known kids like this. Although, I mean, Cassie is very much a product of the late 90s. She's a god. Mm -hmm. which was a very big thing back in those days but we still have those exact same kids now they just go by a different name or a different acronym
2: right Uh, cassie
1: is a a runaway from an abusive home and she's on her own and has to kind of make her way and then in addition to that she's got this rather scary ability that other people don't have so when she meets daryl and realizes that he is the first person she encounters that sees the same ghost that she sees. She understands that um, there might be some way to work together, although she's very she's suspicious of adults in general.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So she's very slow to be willing to reach out. My goal in the second book is I wanted to stretch myself. So I know the characters like Daryl. I, I know the readers really, really enjoyed his development in the first book. I wanted to keep that development going. But I wanted to challenge that a little bit by adding another character that I thought readers could relate to, especially young readers, which I, I did not realize this, but I, my first book has become very popular with teens. So I thought that would be a draw for them as well, because Cassie is 16 years old and is doing all of the uh, most of the negative behaviors that most of the teens would might engage in. And, and her, her life is a mess as a result. So I thought combining those two would make for a good dramatic tension in the story.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that they're, they're so different that they really make a good team. And I love how, um, you become very aware of the differences of, of their generations. I know at one point in the story, uh, Daryl was explaining history to Cassie and Cassie's like, uh, that's not history. Uh, that's not how they teach us in school. And I, I was just wondering, uh, do do all teenagers think like that, that history only happened like 200 years ago?
1: Yeah, almost most teenagers in general. Uh, of course, they don't think anything that, that came before is important. You know, the only thing that's important is them. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> you know, teenagers So history immediately has a lack of interest for them. But as I try to get across in the book, most of the fact that history is not appealing is the fault of the people who teach history Mm. because they don't do a very good job of teaching history. History and social studies is the least popular subject in in schools across the board in, in the U S and my argument in the book is it's because of how it's taught. So Daryl, his job is, I got to try to make people understand what this is. And, you know, I didn't even say part of what I'm trying to do is get people interested in the local history of the area when I do this. So, So I try to work that into the fabric without being pedantic or hitting them over the head with it or anything like that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love the way you, you introduced that. It was great. Now, you mentioned that both of your books are set in the late 1990s, so just about 20 years ago, amazingly. In this time period, you don't find many writers using as a setting for their stories. What made you decide to set your stories in this period as opposed to the present?
1: Well, several reasons, but one primarily, almost exclusively pragmatic. I actually began the first book with the premise of something I had read about lynching. So, Mm.
2: um,
1: as you know, each of my books focuses on a very serious current social issue. In the first book, I decided that would be racial injustice. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: And I thought the best metaphor for that racial injustice was... A lynching, of course. Well, to make it believable, credible, the last lynchings actually occurred around the early to mid-60s. And so I started at that point. The arc of the first story had to be at that point. And I thought, okay, if individuals involved in lynchings were the most powerful people in town, how old would they be? Uh, They'd have to be in their 50s to wield that kind of power. So I simply worked backwards and said, okay, if they were teenagers in in 64, how, you know, what year was it that they'd have to be? And I ended up picking 1998. So that's actually where the uh, initial kickoff of the stories began. So once I started in 98, I had to keep it 99. And then the next one is 2000. It does make it a challenge because it's not history as most people think of. So if you say, I write a historical mystery They're thinking, you know, 1700 or 1800s or something like that. They don't think 1998. But it has all the same requirements of that, trying to make sure you get the fashions right, make sure you get the music right, make sure you get what was in the news all right at that particular time and stuff. So I kind of enjoy that. part. And now since I'm there, the stories have to stay within that same timeline.
0: Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting what, what we think of as historical fiction.
1: I and mean, the evidence of history is anything that's more than 20 years old. Yeah. So this barely scrapes in underneath the wire.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, in, in doing so, writing your book in the 90s, we're just entering the technological age. Uh, cell phones are just starting to get big. And were you trying to keep your narrative in a time that wasn't quite as technology dense, like without cell phones?
1: Yeah, I, to be perfectly honest, I really didn't even think about the cell phone issue, that technology part, until I was kind of halfway into fashioning the first narrative and then went, oh, yeah. Mm. So I think what happens in uh, on on Cape May is the explosion of technology is occurring. Daryl is familiar with being able to use websites and search engines to try to find some of the information for the first time. It's a little clunky in 99, 2000, mm. but you can still start to do it. So I start to work that in. But rather than trying to exclude that, because other writers have chosen earlier times, so they don't have to deal with that. So the guy's got to run to a pay phone or whatever. Yeah. So uh, I, I, That part really wasn't what was in my head. What was in my head is, okay, I need it in this time period. And we'll pick and choose these pieces of technology that are emerging that fit within that historical reality.
0: Yeah. And I think it's an important um, historical aspect as well that I think your young readers will enjoy. Oh, that's how it was when, you know, cell phones first came out. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah.
1: And the fact that cell phones then were really, really expensive. Yeah. So it was a major, major issue. You weren't going to get a cell phone back in that day. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, you talked about some of the research you've done with these books, and I always find the stories behind the research, like, almost as fascinating as the stories themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about your process and some of the specific research you needed to do for Crimson at Cape May?
1: Well, Crimson at Cape May, there was, the research is first and foremost about Cape May. So what is it about this small resort town that makes it different and unique, uh, how did it get that way? Um, for those that don't know, Cape May has the largest collection of Victorian houses in the United States. Mm. Many of which are original. And now they are building lots of current uh, mansions and bed and breakfasts and hotels that are Victorian. And the history tied to that is that there is a fire In 1879, it says in the book, but I forget what the exact year was, Mm -hmm. and it burned down almost the entire town. Wow. So almost the whole town was rebuilt in what was then modern architecture, which we today call Victorian. Then the people who lived there had the smarts to be able to maintain those over the years. There's many of the famous places that I had cited in the book that date to that period. And they, have, they have been maintained and meticulously updated over that few time. So part of that was part of it and part of how Cape May got founded and how it was a, a resort for 150 years, people coming down from New York and what that was like. So that was all part of it. Uh, another part of the story, my focus for this particular, my, my social issue that I wanted to focus on is human trafficking. So there's a lot of research that I did on human trafficking of what we know about how it happens and who are the victims and how are they found those kinds of things. So those pieces were a big part of the research and mm. doing that particular one and the area, the geography, uh, the research on restaurants and what food is and all which of course is a great deal of fun to do the research on and (laughs) as I mentioned I I really love doing the research it's just one of the fun parts yeah and I do probably 90 percent of that before I put the first line on the paper
0: really wow
1: yeah yeah
0: does your being a history teacher have any play in that
1: yeah, and I, I'm not a history teacher. I'm an English teacher. Oh, I'm sorry. It, it is, I Well, no,
0: you have every right to think I would be a history <laughs> teacher since I
1: made my hero here. But I'm an English teacher, and yes, it is part of how I've liked, I did a lot of research that I would have before the class ever started. I had all my stuff lined up. I knew what I needed to do. Uh, before I did a program as an administrator, I did my research, so everything was done. So, yeah, this probably following that pattern. The reason I didn't make this particular hero uh, an English teacher is the fact that he's a history teacher is all part of the story. Mm -hmm. So every place that Daryl goes, he has to use his skill as a history teacher or history researcher to find out what's going on behind the scenes so that he can solve the mystery. Yeah, And a history teacher I thought would be the best to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that even though your stories are set uh, 20 years ago, that both, mysteries include important social justice issues that are relevant today. Can you share why you thought it was important to focus your murder mysteries around such issues? Well,
1: my goal, uh, and if I'm going to go to all the work of putting together um, a top-notch mystery that people will actually enjoy, I believe that people want to learn stuff even while they're being entertained. Mm -hmm. What What most people like the most is Wow, I had a great time reading that, but I also learned about X. So that's kind of how I approach my writing. So, yes, I could do it, and they could just learn about Cape May and the interesting place it is and all the fun stuff behind it. But somehow the mystery carries more weight, I think, if the mystery, the murder mystery in this case, is tied to something that really matters going on in the world today.
2: Mm -hmm. And I'm
1: very, very concerned about human trafficking, and what has happened with that worldwide. Cape May, where it happens to be located, lent itself to that because human trafficking is almost always tied to shipping and transportation. Mm, So mm -hmm. just like drugs being transported are are inseparable from that, so the same is true of this. And, And Cape May is located on one of these major transportation routes. So it just kind of, as I was researching Cape May, I started with Cape May, as research, I'm going. Well, this would be the perfect thing to do that. I, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm very concerned. I don't know if you know this or not. There are more people held in slavery now than at any time in human history.
0: I mean, I don't even know what to say to that. It's it's incredible, and it, it seems like it's under the radar.
1: Exactly. That's it. nobody. Nobody really pays any attention to it or notices it. That's kind of why I yeah. wanted to kind of blight it into the story, so people would go, "Really." Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping they're going, really? I got to look this up because they'll be stunned by what they find.
0: Oh, I was. Absolutely. And then you've added another element. So <laughs> it's not just a mystery, it's not just a paranormal. Now it's social injustice. I mean, I see right. what you were saying right. earlier about, you know, that categorizing your work. So it's, it's just, it's got everything. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, the very first review I got from an author. He said something like, Overbeck has pulled a nifty hat trick, and he has been able to do all of these things, one, two, three, four, all, you know, everything yeah. together uh, and, and make it all work in one story. And he said, it's a risk, but it's a risk worth taking or something like that. It was
0: yeah.
1: really, and that, it's really interesting that that was the very first review I ever got.
0: That's nice. Yeah, and, and it does. It, it,
1: it works. He wrote a nifty literary feat with a bit of romance, a lot of mystery, and a good deal of old-fashioned ghost whispering.
0: <laughs> I love that. Now, I feel like you've answered this question multiple times over the course of this interview, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. Um, There are many great mystery writers out there and also a good number of wonderful whodunit authors. What is it that you believe sets apart your work from other amateur sleuth mysteries? Well, what
1: I hope that they will enjoy in my stories, plural, is that, first of all, they'll find and learn about and discover a really incredible beach location um, as the shore part of Haunted Shore's mystery. So Mm -hmm. that's something though they're not going to get with everybody else. And each one they know, they'll discover something new. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second thing I think is that the fact that it is all of these things combined, that there is a little bit of the ghost mystery. uh, They'll find that there's a good piece of who done it? Involved, and that the characters are people that you will care about and enjoy, and then you add to all of that the fact that they'll walk away learning something new. In the first case, in the in the first book, Blood on the Chesapeake, I, I'm assuming they're going to learn a lot about racial injustice and what happened with lynching and what happened in towns and how towns had covered that up. And her, in Crimson on Cape May, they'll learn about human trafficking and how that goes on and uh, what's kind of behind it. So I'm hoping that all of those together gives them a package they figure is worth their time and money Mm -hmm. and maybe give them something that they are not going to get in a regular uh, amateur salute mystery, even a really great well-written run.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know um, our reviewer, she is a big fan of historical (laughs) fiction and paranormal and mystery. And so your book just kind of knocked it out of the park for her. And she did admit to me that she did go out and buy the first book after she finished.
1: (laughs) That's great to hear. That's super.
0: Yeah. I'm hoping that happens a lot. And
1: she wrote in her review, I worked very, very hard to make sure that Crimson on Cape May can stand alone by itself. If you haven't read the first book, you don't have any trouble trying to figure out what's going on or who these characters are or anything. But I'm hoping that by the time you finish, you're going, man, I'd like to see what that first book had to say about these guys before right. I got to this part. Right, right. So I'm glad to hear that you did that.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, well, happy to share that, too. So, So where do you go from here? Do you have other writing projects you're working on that you'd like to share?
1: I'll be glad to. I have the third in the series that I am 80% finished on. Mm. Expect to have a completion date by the end of the year which will take Daryl to a new haunted shore. And I'm trying something a little different. So like the other, like the first two books, like Blood on Chesapeake and Crimson on Cape May, it will be a cold case murder mystery wrapped in a ghost story served with a side of romance <laughs> in another beautiful location. This time it will be on the Gulf Coast of Florida. Oh. But uh, I like to challenge myself. So this particular one will also be a Christmas mystery. So oh. uh, Daryl and Aaron end up taking their honeymoon in Florida over Christmas vacation. And of course, the honeymoon turns into a ghost honey experience. Oh, no. So, not exactly the typical honeymoon. <laughs> uh, and I'm hoping they will enjoy that as much as they've enjoyed the first two. Uh, there's still much work to be done on it, but uh, I'm close. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm excited about it.
0: Well, that, it sounds amazing. How many books do you have planned for the series? I don't
1: what- know. I, well, my original plan was a trio. Which mm. The third book would complete it, but it would completely depend on uh, readers' response to the first three books to decide. I have a plan for a fourth book if I decide to go there, and, I, and I'm and i the kind, I just kind of like go to the next step. I have two more writing projects that I'm already started on, mm-hmm. uh, neither would be connected to this storyline. One also takes place in the 90s, and it's a story of a rogue drug that ends up killing kids in, in intermediate school,
2: mm. and
1: then... And then I'm also working on a thriller that takes place during the Revolutionary War. uh, And it features a teacher, although in those days it was a tutor, who is a spy for the colonies.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Well, I have plenty of literary tasks on my plate.
0: (laughs) Yes, you do. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today, Randy?
1: Well, I I know that readers have a lot of choice. that They have lots of great reading options out there. I'm hoping after they, uh, they will listen to this podcast, they'll uh, believe that either Blood on the Chesapeake or the new one Crimson on Cape May is worth a few minutes of their time to check it out. And once they check it out, I know they'll be hooked.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Randy, thank you so much for uh, sharing a little bit about yourself and your work with us today. I really appreciate you joining us.
1: Glad to do it.
0: Thank you for joining me today on Inside Scoop Live for my interview with Randy Overbeck about his latest novel, Crimson at Cape May. For more information about Randy and his work, visit his website at authorrandyoverbeck.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at Inside Scoop Live.